1: Hello and welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Firstly, I hope you are fighting fit. Family and friends too. Coming up very soon, you'll hear a chat I had with former Club England Managing Director, Adrian Bevington. But first, thank you for all your feedback on the recent episodes, especially those in the Your First England away game series. I've got more up my sleeve plus another of our England at the European Championships coming soon. Don't forget all previous episodes can be found at 3lionspodcast.com or your preferred podcast provider and I'll let you know at the end of this recording how you too can get involved. Now with no further ado here's that conversation I had with Adrian Bevington. Welcome to the Three Lions podcast. As you'll know, over previous episodes, we've tried to dip my toe into the, the England world, not just on the, the player front, but I've been fortunate enough to speak with the likes of Peter Taylor, Gary Lewin, Tim Diath, who all in their own way help Team England function. And this time, I'm pleased to welcome Adrian Bevington to the Three Lions podcast. Adrian, hello.
0: Hi, Russell. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, all things considered. And yourself? Very well. Uh, looking forward to the chat. Good stuff. Well, in the the current situation we find ourselves in, I've I've have heard you talking about it on, on various media outlets and how it affects football and and obviously people are missing it. And I thought, well, rather than talking about what we don't know in regards to when we'll see it again, perhaps we could have a uh, a chat about your time with England, the good times, and what you can tell us about the FA, some anecdotes and some positive stories.
0: I shall do my very best for you.
1: <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean, you, you worked for the FA in various guises, I believe, for about 17 years, is that right?
0: Yeah, just for 17 years. Um, started off as a press officer with Peter Taylor um, okay. in 1997. Went to the World Cup with uh, the team in ninety-eight as, a, as, as one of the team press officers uh, and, and over a period of time became head of media, head of comms and director of comms in, I think it was 2004-05. And then went on around the time of the South Africa World Cup to become the MD of the sort of newly formed Club England department, which was in effect the the lead executive across all of the operational side of managing the 24 England teams. And then I remained there till I left the organisation in uh, December 2014, which I think had you know I've been at the been at the wicket long enough by then. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, was it always the dream to to work in football and and perhaps work for the FA? I can't
0: say it was always the dream to work, you know, in the roles that I did or or, or work for the FA specifically. But I don't, you know, I always wanted to be a footballer. Like I'm sure, of so many England England fans, you you start off as a as a kid. You want to be a footballer, um, and I played football all my life as a as a as a young boy, and literally played for lots of different teams and. You know, got so far down the line, but in the end, it didn't happen for me. So the next best thing was to uh, find a career working in the game. And I kind of stumbled my way into it, if I'm being honest with you, with Middlesbrough back in the mid- early mid-90s. And it went from there and ended up with the FA in 97, but always had a big passion for England. And, you know, I don't say that glibly. I think a lot of people can talk about oh, this, that and the other, but... Was digging some pictures out the other day, as lots of people are doing it at the moment for Facebook and things, and you know, found a picture of my first England shirt when I was about six, with you know the, the first Admiral England kit. Oh yes, and, you know, then I had the red one, which I always remember them wearing in Bulgaria in about seventy nine, I think it was, when they wore the white socks with the white shorts and the red top, things like that. You know, I, I remember my my first. I, I vaguely recall the England Scotland game because my dad was down in London that day, but I also. Really clearly remember the England-Italy game in 77 um, when they played the winners with Barnes and Koppel. Keegan and Brooklyn were playing that night. And I was a really young boy, but that, that sticks with me in that game because we were so fantastic that night and should have won by a hatful and obviously just narrowly missed out because of previous results on, on the Argentina World Cup. So then you bounce forward, don't you, in a Spain 82 and everything from there. So, yeah, always been a big England fan. So it was a dream come true to work around the team, yes.
1: So you started working on the media side of things. That must have changed throughout your, your tenure to, or you've seen changes to, to where we are now. Yeah,
0: it's changed radically, you know, just insofar as the developments with websites, 24-hour rolling news, the different platforms that are available and the social media element, you know, it's all grown various tentacles when i first started you know it was very much dominated by the writers a small number of broadcasters both radio and tv that that was it really the newspapers i'm not saying they're not powerful now but they were incredibly powerful during those days you know so, and, and and a lot of very you know big name football writers uh, who you know were very close around the setup and maybe been very close around the england setup for many many years as well so yeah, it changed dramatically. I think the World Cup in South Africa was a real big game changer because social media had a massive influence on that World Cup for the first time. But we didn't even have Sky Sports News when I first went to the World Cup in France 98. That came on the back of that. So massive oh, okay. landscape changes during that period and a lot to contend with for people working in the industry, both you know, club side, FA side, but also on the media side as well.
1: we done a recent podcast that looked at euro 96 and of course just prior to euro 96 there was um the the infamous incident that that happened out in hong kong and i I think it was the sun that gave england a uh, a front page uh, Mm. rather than the back page there that obviously you weren't involved at that point but you must have come across some some real hard times on on sort of the the media front and newspapers yeah i mean
0: look we we unfortunately at times did find ourselves on the front pages, be it for the private lives of managers, and we you know we can all laugh about some of the episodes of spends time in charge. That was very much personal life related in the main. We had you know that episode when uh, I'm kind of laughing now, but I wasn't laughing at the time. Was, oh, I bet um, when the players ended up on the front page when it was the. Uh, alleged proposed strike before we went to play that game in Istanbul in 2003 when um, Rio Ferdinand hadn't um, uh, missed a drugs test by all accounts so that was quite a a turbulent period and the players got stuck on the front page there's been one or two occasions when we've made the front end of the book not for the right not for the right reasons or in positive times and it's um, you know you just don't want to be there quite frankly in the end everybody involved in the main around football is in it for football and you know you want to be on the back pages or in the sports sections of any media outlet so it's very challenging because you know you can get a call I mean I remember um, when Sven um, got uh, stung by the fake shake you remember that story Mm. and you know I was at home on a Saturday afternoon late afternoon and I got a call from Two journalists, very senior football writers on Sunday newspapers, one of them a sports editor, marking my card that Sven had been done by the fake shake. Now, I knew he'd been abroad that week in the Gulf. I knew he'd been there with permission for a project he was allegedly talking to somebody about. I rang one of his representatives and said, I'm hearing that we've been done by the, Sven's been done by the fake shake. I was absolutely categorically assured that wasn't the case. I then went back to my two contacts and advised them, it's not my understanding. And then they came back shortly after and said, I can assure you, it definitely is the case. And within a very short period of time, he was on the front page of the news of the world. And then, you know, we're all in the office the following morning, Sunday morning, and, you know, the world's falling in because it just doesn't, it just didn't look good. And we had had another section out the following week. Now, you know, it was a very complicated process that because I believe Sven in the end after his time with England, um, took legal action against the newspaper. And I think he was successful. I sound to be like corrected on that, um, about some of the things that were said in there, but it just shows you the level of exposure that you're dealing with around the national team. And during that period, you know, you remember very well, Russell. we had that, that group of players that were uh, tagged the golden generation and, um, you know, there were some big stars, big big names in those in in, the, in those teams.
1: Yeah. So, do you think now the likes of Twitter and and Facebook and um, Instagram have have made things a little bit easier for for people in uh, that were in your position back then?
0: Look, there's a lot of challenges with social media, but I think it gives the players and high profile people the chance to have some direct interaction with you know with the public with the fans and i think that's really important and from the very outset i've been a, an advocate of it because i think if used wisely it does fill that chasm that we all know as you know certainly perceived to have grown over a, you know a decade or more that there's too much distance between players and the fans so it does you know i think and a lot of the players have been brilliant and their management in the way that they are you know creative with some of the content that they put on particularly things like Instagram. Um, yeah. They can show some of the things that you know would have been impossible to show before, a little bit more about them as being people. So I see it as a positive. It's not always a perfect place on social media, as we all know, because it can get a bit aggressive, volatile at times. Um, but, yeah, in the main, if harnessed correctly, I think it's positive.
1: I'm guessing yeah. as well that under your your watch, as it were, St George's Park must have been... Um, you must have seen it from its early beginnings to its fully functioning as it is today. That must have been good to have seen and been involved with.
0: took a long time. <laughs> I, remember going, I remember going to a field in East Staffordshire with Adam Crozier, who was then Chief Exec, and Howard Wilkinson, who was Technical Director, in around about 99, 2000, and some a photo call at a gate, which was the entrance to the site. And it was another 10 years before it was finished and more. So, you know, it was put on hold for a long time just because of the financial circumstances during one particular period. But watching it then be built and, you know, the fantastic facility it became very quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I think we were all very proud of within the organisation. You know, there was a the number of people who played key roles in that. I wouldn't say myself. But a lot of other people who, you know, were dedicated to that project, you know, and it's 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 good that you see now Gareth Southgate at the helm of the England team. When Gareth himself, in his previous capacities with the FA, was an integral voice to those conversations, and I think that just showcases the qualities of the individual in Gareth is.
1: What's Gareth like to to be around and, and work with? I'm sure you've had experience with him.
0: He's brilliant and. I don't say that lightly. I've been fortunate enough to work with so many people in football over the years. And I can honestly say that Gareth is right up there as being the very, very best person. I thought from when he was a player and I used to sit and have breakfast with Gareth on a frequent basis back in sort of early 2000s. And we just have a chat. I always thought he could easily go on to be a top manager. He obviously had his spell at Middlesbrough, which you know he, he, he was comfortable in mid-table in the Premier League for his first couple of seasons, but unfortunately did get relegated in his third season. But spending time around him as a, an individual, I was delighted when we got him back into the organisation working with Sir Trevor Brookin, who's another great person, by the way. And then when he came back in as the under-21 coach, spent a little bit of time around that team, travelled to a game in Croatia and loved the way uh, he got it set up. The environment with the staff was brilliant. The players clearly really like playing for him. He's got brilliant values as a person, which he lives. He's got, I think, a really good uh, philosophy towards international football. You know, he—he, he, I know, he's a massive fan of Terry Venables, who he played for. Um, you know, and I think he—he he rates his time under Terry as being one of the best that he ever had as a player takes a lot from that and others that he worked with. And he's a brilliant communicator. And I think the FA are very fortunate that they've got someone like Gareth, who is the perfect fit to be the England manager at at this particular time. He leads from the front. He he understands and gets things. Um, And I think as, you know, as England fans, I I know people weren't necessarily all jumping through who's when Gareth was appointed, but he's done such a good job Carried that team with him, built the team, changed the shape a few times, and I think the fans have really embraced him as well. So there's a great rapport there between Gareth and the fans, and it's it's made it a whole lot easier on the communications piece because of that.
1: Yeah, and I, you mentioned the under twenty ones there, and I, I personally think it was a, a right move for him to to come from that under twenty ones through to the senior. Um, senior section and, and manage the senior team. I think that was a, a wise move, and I think that's one of the reasons why why England fans have have taken to him and his his personal um, his personal touch. The the recent letter he he put out was a a really nice touch as well.
0: I agree entirely, and that that's you know that that is Gareth. You know, and I'm sure there will have been people within the FA, particularly in the communications division, who. You know, we we'll have spoken to Gareth about that, but also Gareth. They are Gareth's words. You know, he he will care passionately, um, and that's you know that's what he will have wanted to do. And, and he just, I, I don't think England have probably had a manager that has worked so deeply within the FA before. So he he is probably more suited to being the England manager than anyone else who's ever been in the job before because they've come from club roles. And you used to get all those questions about, oh, well, you know, how are you going to fill your time day to day? Well, Gareth knows that because he's been a 21s coach. Because he was the guy who worked within the player development department with Trevor Brooking and was, you know, going around the country to uh, county FA meetings, meeting with people from different leagues to convince them that we needed to change the um, small-sided football nature of the game about 10 years ago. You know, he he gets who the players are in the youth system. And he's also been integral to the England DNA, which is one of the key reasons why we are where we are now.
1: And, and I guess that's as well what's often said about St George's Park, isn't it? The, that DNA.
0: The DNA was crucial, you know, and to be fair to Trevor Brookin, he was there at the outset of that, Dan Ashworth, who then, You know, there was a joint period of Trevor and Dan before Trevor retired, and then Dan picked up that baton with Gareth, with Matt Crocker, who's now gone to Southampton, and and people like Dave Redding. And they they kind of crafted that, and you could see it developing, you know. And once I'd left, I could still see it uh, very clearly. Um, I just think they got into a rhythm of winning at the junior tournaments, which was something we'd struggled with previously, even though we'd had good players, we kind of got ourselves lost a little bit in some of those youth tournaments where we, instead of, in my opinion, trying to win one tournament, we spread ourselves too thin when we couldn't then win any across the different age groups in the summer. So we kept qualifying, but then never actually winning. I think what's been great to see over the past, I'm going to say, five or six years is we've started really being successful at those development tournaments, and we have to continue that. It's just, you know, winning. Winning is a good habit, but also the teams that have been dominant at world football, like Spain, for their sustained period, had been massively successful at development tournaments.
1: How far do you think we are behind the likes of Spain or or are we on a, a level with them now, do you think?
0: I think there's no doubt about it. The players that we've got coming through, we are currently one of the best teams in the world. And that doesn't—that's not me sitting here saying we are the best team in the world or that we will win this tournament, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we—we we have such a depth of quality of players coming through um, and already there that we've got to be competing <clears throat> with the very best teams. I mean, the proof in the end is in the pudding. In major finals, can you actually do it? Um, but you know, you, you, I look at France at the moment. I think France possibly have the, you know, the, the best squad in. In the world, in my opinion, and they would have been favourites going into this summer's tournament. Had it had it been played, um, but there would have been a lot. There's always expectation on England, but I, there would have been a lot of expectation on England. And you know, England have such a a lot of verve at the moment, a lot of pace. You know, a very attack-minded team, and ultimately that that would frighten any team that you're playing against in a tournament. So, it gives you a real chance. Plus, the home advantage that we'd have had. In this tournament, and
1: hopefully we'll have next summer. Yeah, let's hope so. Now you've you've been to was it? Five World Cups and three European Championships. Yeah, I have. All in in various different. Yeah, and
0: my, yeah, and my, up until 2010, I was in you know media or you know comms roles. Or, and but I also went to a lot of I mean, think you know number of under 21 tournaments, under 20 World Cups being out to women's euros and world cups and you know under 17s and things like that I mean back in 2011 I think it was I went to Serbia with the under 17s under John Peacock and Kenny Swain great blokes and you know in that squad you had people like Raheem Sterling was in that group Jordan Pickford played Nathan Redmond was in that group I, I Actually, on that trip, I, had, I got a phone call from John Peacock before I went, So I didn't go on all those trips frequently, but I wanted to just make sure I was having a look at how it was and, and supporting the staff on that particular trip. And it was a qualifying tournament with four teams. And John said, oh, look, we've got one player who can't come out with us on the Saturday, but he's coming out on the Sunday. I think you're coming out on the Sunday, aren't you? Would you be able to make, you know, look after him coming out? He's only 16. I said, yeah, no problem. It was Raheem. Right. So... <laughs> great yeah no problem at all whatsoever so I'm due to go to Heathrow on a Sunday morning and I think it was a lunchtime flight or early afternoon flight and I got a phone call about nine o'clock in the morning it was Raheem <laughs> hi it's Raheem uh, I'm at Heathrow where are you so blimey I haven't set off yet mate I'll, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be there as quick as I can so um, I said just you know sit yourself down and out of the way and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll see you as soon as I get there so I get myself round to Heathrow and he and I then, you know, we go through customs and spend a bit of time having a bite to eat in the cafe beforehand. You know, we fly in just, you know, really you know, bog-standard tickets, flying on a small airline, uh, get to Belgrade Airport. And unfortunately, Rah- Raheem's bag doesn't come off the carousel. So I had to go and hunt his bag down with all the gear in, which was <laughs> quite, a, quite a start. But then, you know, you, we then shared a car for however long it was to get to Novosad, where we were based. And I said, it's the first time I ever met Raheem. So I've always kept a, a really close eye on him, and I've been delighted, you know, with his his developments during that period, and the developments of him as a person as well. You know, when he got up on the stage and did his speech at the um, Player of the Year award last year, you know, he, you know, he you know he's really grown up as a person. So you know, it's little things like that that you remember, and you know, you'll never forget, quite frankly.
1: Yeah, it must be really so- pleasing to see. You were Club England Managing Director between 2010 and 2014. Was that sort of just promotion within the FA? And and what, what does the Managing Director do?
0: Right. So, I mean, what happened then was I I spoke with the chief exec at the time, who was Ian was in Watmore, who is incoming to the England Cricket Board. Uh, and I was, you know, done by that point about 13 years in the organisation, which... Well, it's a massive privilege, it was a pretty full-on job 24-7, if I'm being honest with you. And I was ready for a change. And Ian, with one or two others, said, well, look, we're creating an England department, in effect. Rather than have it been sat in international, uh, some in youth development, it was kind of a bit potted around the organisation. So brought it all into one structure, and they called it Club England. Uh, personally, I wasn't a particular fan of... The title, but that's by the by. And in effect, I was the I mean, managing director, I was the chief executive of that department. What did we do? Well, we had all the staff who do a brilliant do and did a brilliant job with all of the operations. I mean, one thing about England, whenever they travelled anywhere, home or away, the operation was absolutely first class. Any player who's ever been around England will tell you that. Whether it be travel, accommodation, security, just the general operation, the planning, it was always spot on. Some great people who worked, you know, you'll have heard, I'm sure, of Michelle uh, Farah, you know, Anne Romilly, who was part of that team, as well as many other people we, you know, to contribute massively across different teams as well. So every month I would host a meeting that had the chairman of the FA, generally David Bernstein, at that period for that period, who was a really good man and good chairman for the FA, the chief executive of the FA myself, then people like Michelle. But we'd also have um, the England manager. We'd have the under-21 coach. We'd have the women's coach. We'd have the technical director, so Trevor, then Dan. We'd have Ray Clements in there as head of national teams. We'd have the commercial people come in, the legal legal people. So we could have a really good mixture. And that would that was a forum that had never really existed before with the football coaches, technical people and the administration people all in one room on a routine basis where we agreed fixtures for all the teams. We agreed to sign off on lots of different activities. We agreed, you know, even things like sign approval for the kits so everyone bought into it. Um, lots of um, things occurred in that meeting and we, you know, it was properly minuted. Um, and to be fair, that, that was something that I really enjoyed because I felt that that, Brought us closer together as a unit, so everybody knew what we were doing and planning better. There was always a great deal of planning going on, but it wasn't always quite as joined up as it had been. As it, sorry, as it got to be.
1: What would be the most memorable thing though or sort of, I don't know if legacy is the right word to say, but that have come out of your your time as being managing director there? What are, sort of you most proud of at that time?
0: Um, I'm not sure. It's about legacy or being proud of anything. And look, I've just got some some great memories. I, ultimately, the disappointment is that we didn't win anything. So, you know, you, you don't really leave a legacy of success, which obviously is the disappointment. But, you know, I, but for a couple of penalty shootouts, particularly in 2004 in Portugal, you know, I could be sitting here talking to you as a team, you know, being involved in a team that won the European Championships. You know, I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, and I remain convinced that, you know, we can all talk about what might have been, but I do honestly believe that if Wayne Rooney hadn't had his um, foot injury when we were 1-0 up earlier in that game against Portugal, and he's the best player in the tournament, I think we'd go on and win that game comfortably. And that gives us the chance then to, you know, the tournament really opened up and we would have had a real chance of winning that. Um, And I felt the confidence in the group. It was a cracking set of players. Confidence in the group was really, really there. And then you bounce on to, port to um, Germany 2006, and there was a lot of pressure around that team. The expectation was really incredibly strong. Um, but we had good players. I and mean, When you name that team, some really good players there. I don't think we particularly performed well in any of the games during that tournament while winning. And then we came to the quarterfinal with Portugal, and I actually thought we were the better team in that game. Um, Even with 10 men, I think we could have easily won that game with 10 men. Uh, And then, of course, the penalty shootout came and we just collapsed as we habitually did until Gareth got that sorted out in Russia. You kind of knew that you were going to lose a penalty shootout. Ironically, I thought the team that Roy took to Ukraine in 2012, I thought that team probably performed to a par for what it was at that particular time. And I thought in the penalty shoot, I think if I'm starting to be corrected, but I think we got the serve back. So in effect, we should have gone on to win it under the law of averages. And at one okay. point, I thought, crikey, we're actually going to win a penalty shoot. Now. Think, was it, was it actually young who absolutely smashed one? I think it hit the bar right in the middle of the bar full on and flew yeah. back. Out. You know, and it's like never criticize someone for smashing the bar with a penalty, in my opinion. And you just think, blimey fact, Goes an inch under. We probably do go on and beat Italy, who'd you know kept the ball off us for about eighty-nine minutes. In the so you just never know. But so I'm, I'm pleased that they've got over that hurdle, and I, that hasn't happened by chance. They've, they've worked very hard on the penalty side of it. And I know speaking to speaking to Sven about it, he he regrets that he hadn't spent more time involving a sports um, psychologist to work with the team to to overcome that. What became a,
1: a genuine mental hurdle? That's still, still, always a learning curve for managers, isn't it? They're always, always reflecting back.
0: Yeah, the best ones do anyway, because no one has all the answers. But I think you've also got to have massive belief. You know, I've been, I said, I've been very privileged to to work with so many different managers at different levels, um, and to be the England manager, you've, you've got to have you've got to have a strength of character because. You know, the resolve you need when you're under pressure is is massive. You know, and even, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with Sir Bobby Robson um, after he'd been the manager, but spent time talking to him and, and an unbelievable man, and even though Bobby is the most genial or was the most genial man you'd ever meet. His strength of character was always there. It was the same with Terry, who obviously I had some experience dealing with Terry when he was working with Steve McLaren. You know yes, yes. you could see with you could see with Terry that you know his his steel was there and, and it was you've got to have that because you've you've got a massively responsible job you're leading the nation you're there to inspire a group of players lift them take the pressure off them be tactically astute and be someone who can be front of the house and and manage them you know the, one of the most more forcible media packs in the world. And a huge fan base. We've always had brilliant support, but then you look back and think to those tournaments in Japan, where you turn out in the ground and three quarters of the ground were England fans. It was just <laughs> breathtaking.
1: Japan, Japan was a wonderful place to go to. That was my my first away um, England tournament, and I've got some some great memories of that one.
0: I'm sure there's so many fan stories from that tournament. I mean, it it was. It was a great time because obviously Sven had come in uh, about 18 months earlier. And I think he changed things really quickly without, in a classic Sven way, he didn't. It was nothing overtly radical, but he, he got the team winning very quickly. We played that game in Greece. We beat Greece 2-0 in Athens in a qualifier, where I still think, I think that was one of England's most complete performances in a qualifying game. Then, of course, we went to Germany and pulled off that 5-1 result, which was just an unbelievable night and the momentum that we, we had going at that point was was unreal for quite a new team. There was a lot of inexperienced players in that team mixed with some experienced guys. So if you remember Peter Taylor had sort of made some radical changes for the one game he had in charge and Spend kept some of them because Pete was in his squad as a coach and so was Steve McLaren. And so the Germany night was just unreal. The Greece game obviously um, which we didn't play well that day, but we had the goal from David, which will be eternally remembered. And the, I just felt going into that tournament in Japan, the euphoria from the fans was just something really special. But people might forget that we, you know, we we picked up injuries. Stephen Gerrard had to pull out with injury before that tournament, right on the eve of us going, unfortunately. And that was a that was a big loss for us as a squad. Um, Gary Neville was injured from that tournament as well, if you remember. And Michael Owen was actually carrying an injury all the way through that tournament as well. He was having like intensive physio to, make, to get him through those games. So we weren't quite as strong as we perhaps could have been, but, you know, still magical. But the game in Munich, what, what a night that was. And, you know, Michael scoring that hat-trick, swapping shirts with Jörg Burma the, uh, the Germany fullback yeah. from Schalke. And then as I was meeting Michael as he was coming off the picture-taking for his TV interview. So I said, Michael, what have you done with your shirt? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, you swapped it. I said, you've just got a hat-trick in Munich against Germany. I said, you've just swapped your shirt. He said, how oh, can you get me it back? I said, well, OK, I'll do my best. So um, not not being able to speak German, I called Tony Woodcock, who was a friend of mine, who was at the game near the tunnel, And said to Tony, look, I need your help, mate, big time. Um, So you can imagine us knocking on the Germany door after they've just lost 5-1 and having to go in there and do a shirt retrieval swap with the Burma. So then i give it back to Michael. But if you see pictures of Michael immediately after the game, he's actually carrying. He might even be wearing the shirt. I think it's a number three shirt. So he's actually wearing that shirt immediately after the game when he swapped it. But he actually got the original shirt back.
1: Yeah, I have seen. I've seen a picture that's of him wearing it, uh, but I didn't wasn't aware of that story there. No, that's great. <laughs> I mean, you must have one or two other little anecdotes, have you, from your time, if if you could share with us?
0: Um, <laughs> I've got plenty of anecdotes. I don't many how many of them I am able, able to share. Um, there was a brilliant one for me with Howard Wilkinson. If you remember, Kevin obviously resigned in the toilets at Wembley after mm. the Germany defeat in in the old Wembley, which was a you know, a bit of a uh, production because I was running around the stadium getting Adam Crozier down at the dressing room and one or two other people and then I got called in, Kevin there and we're stood in the back of the, the old dressing rooms at Wembley, which weren't particularly great and the guys are telling me that Kevin is adamant he's resigning um, and I need to go and do something, something with the media. Meanwhile, the, the u Ryan was literally about a, fi- a foot away while one of the <laughs> more established players is stood going through the... <laughs> the motions at the toilet you're thinking this is quite surreal and then I remember ringing Howard well, I worked closely with Howard because he was with all the youth teams which I also did all the work with, with it, from the media side of it and I rang Howard and he was on the bus going back to Saltwell House in St Albans where the, with the 21s who was in charge of at the time and I said Howard I said how are you doing he said oh what's happened blah 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 I said well you might want to be getting your bag packed and spinning around I think you're going to get a phone call and sure enough he was in the chair back at the hotel uh, that night or the following morning. But we then had, you know, we'd, we'd lost to Germany, the, the whole thing, lost to Germany, lost lost Kevin. The mood wasn't particularly upbeat and we were really on the back foot with the media. And um, I was flying with the team and one of my colleagues, Joanne Budd, who worked with the team for many, many years, brilliant press officer and operations press person. She organised everything superbly. And and Joanne was in Finland already with the press. And we trained on the Monday and we were due to fly. And uh, she's ringing me saying, look, who's up tonight? Who's the captain going to be? Blah, blah, blah. I said, look. And normally I try and find out and tell her just so we can set the tone. But obviously wasn't sure what was happening myself. I get a phone call. Can I go and see Howard in his room? And obviously Howard and I were quite close anyway. So I go in the room and Howard stood there, towel around his waist, shaving foam on, literally... Every stroke with his razor, he was like, well, Adam's art, Campbell's art, Beckham's art, who the bloody hell's me captain? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like looking there. He's not at any stage turned around to me at this point. He's looking at me through the mirror. So we're having this conversation with me looking at him in the mirror. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether you're actually asking me, Howard, or if you're just musing. Um, I said, I don't really know what you're asking here, but I said, you've got to do a big presser when you get out to Finland, I said, and it's going to be a bit lively. So you've got to have someone who can deal with that. But I don't know who's in your team, and I'm not trying to tell you who to pick in your team. I said, but if you want someone who can do the press for you, who's going to be in your team, if he's in, the best person to put up will be Gareth Southgate. He said, yeah, so... It didn't, it didn't give me any real indication. I wasn't really looking for any indication. I certainly wasn't trying to tell him who'd be picking the team, just to be clear. Anyway, off I go. I've got Joe ringing me and she's saying, oh, well, who's, you know, can you tell me who the captain's going to be? It'll just pacify the press for a bit. Blah I said, no, no, it's not fair. No one knows who it is yet. Don't know. It's not fair. Anyway, we get on the plane at Luton uh, and see how we walk down the plane and I think someone had mentioned to me it might be it was going to be another player. I saw Howard walk past this particular player, saw him walk past Gareth, and then he sat next to Martin Keon and that's when Martin Keon was given the captaincy for that game. So Martin had to come and do all of the fun press that night in in Finland. So Gareth wasn't one for that, to be honest with you, because that was uh. a that was a horrible horrible environment to do your do your first England press conference as captain. But I'm sure Martin was proud of it. To be fair, and he did his very best, but yeah, that was a. Um, one of the more surreal trips that we had in that regard. We went to Nigeria in 1999 for the Under-20 World Cup and we were managed by Chris Ramsey, who's obviously since worked with QPR and Tottenham amongst others, the former Brighton player. Uh, Really good coach and good person to work with, but we had a a squad that was, we had something in the region of about 60 um, people who called out of that squad. Clubs, Clubs withheld them. There was a lot of issues going around at the time, so... It was a very threadbare squad, and it was also a very small staff that went to. Um, we were playing in uh, three, Kano. I think was the first place we played in, in Nigeria, and we didn't have enough players to make up the numbers to play eleven v eleven the night before the game on the stadium pitch. And I played right back for, <laughs> the, for the reserves, and I could still <laughs> move a little bit then. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't quite as out of out of physique as I am now. But um, yeah, it, it didn't bode well because from memory, I think we beat the first team 2-0 on the stadium pitch. And <laughs> America that whole night had Landon Donovan
1: and uh, Tim Howard playing for them. Really? <laughs> so did, did you get a cap for that?
0: Sadly, no cap. But I, did, you know, it was a, I can always turn around and say I've, I've, I've played for England in some capacity. But that was a good group of people. Ashley Cole was in that squad. you know. And okay. I, actually, was a, you was know, an unbelievable, one of my favourite all-time England players, actually. Always played well in tournaments, in my opinion. That game against Portugal in 2004 at Stadium Light, I think he was, you know, that was a it was a duel between two iconic players in their positions in Ashley Cole and Cristiano Ronaldo, and I was sat just next to the dugout that night, so I was watching it at pitch level, and the the speed between those two players was just it had me gasping for air just watching it.
1: I mean, just almost coming up to not not current time, but um, you had a period of time with the Welsh team at Euro twenty sixteen, didn't you? Was that a uh, did you find a little bit of conflict of interests there? Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I got called summer
0: of twenty fifteen, so I'd left the FA six months earlier, and the chief exec who I knew reasonably well, rang me and said, Would I come over for a meeting? Obviously, Wales were looking like well, they were in contention for qualifying for the first time since '58 for a tournament, and um, they didn't have anyone within the organisation who had tournament experience. They had a lot of very good people uh, in different positions, but no one had actually been to a tournament. So, I got involved as a tournament advisor across the whole project, you know, ranging from organising the meetings for which which charter plane company they're going to use for different flights. Going out to France and looking at particular venue opportunities for the base camp, um, and going and sitting in meetings every every week for you know maybe a day or a day a couple of days every fortnight sort of thing, and um, great people to work with. And then it was just unreal that they, they were always going to get drawn against England, weren't they? Yeah. Um, that was a day where it was a very it was a strange day for me because I was. I was really bought into working with the Welsh as well. They were they were so good with me and so welcoming. Chris Coleman was absolutely brilliant. I didn't work around the team. So the tournament, my, my role was minimal around the tournament because all the work had been done from my side. And I was very conscious not to be trying to tell the Welsh to do things, you have to do this because we've done this with England. That wasn't my mindset, but it was just some of the nuances that crop up in tournaments that you wouldn't be aware of until you've been in them. I see. see. Um, so that, they used me a lot for that I and mean, I say great people, but yeah, a little bit of conflict of interest, but to be honest with you, you know, I, I, I really, you know, the, the night where Wales beat um, Belgium in Lille 3-2, I mean, that was, that was an unbelievable night from from my point of view, you know, uh, as a, just as a football fan and as a working capacity. So, you know, I felt at that point, obviously my time with England had, had finished, but Saying that, I'm still a massive England fan. I hope that's come through in the conversation here. You know, my my Absolutely. my my passion for the I want the team to do well, I want them to achieve success, I want Gareth to achieve success. You know, and, and it's an organization. The FA are an organization that you know often gets stick, like any big institution, but they do a, such a great deal of good work with very professional people. And I always say to people, the FA is in my bones now. It will be there forever, uh, and I'm very passionate about it and care deeply.
1: Wow, that's that's really great to hear, and it's really great to hear that, that side of things and some uh, some lovely, wonderful stories that you've given us there, and I'd just like to, uh, to say thank you very much for that. It's my pleasure, Russell. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and thank you very much to Adrian for his time there very much appreciated. you can follow him on Twitter at a bevington eleven so I hope you enjoyed it. I found it fascinating hearing the backstory about Sven's news of the world incident and who knew about the Michael Owen moment after the Germany game now as I mentioned at the top of the episode, you too can get involved with the your first England away game series. Just drop me a line at 3 at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch on Twitter at 3 Lions podcast, And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're feeling generous, then a review on the likes of iTunes always goes down well. I'll treat you to a beer on the next away day. Can't say fairer than that. I'll be back soon with another of our England at the Euros podcast. So please do join me for that. In the meantime, stay safe and keep your distance. Cheers.